Today we're doing what we do for each show. We talk to experts about hot topics and share their information. This is apparently inappropriate now with certain members of parliament on certain topics. Today in Australia, it's the former Liberal Party's Craig Kelly talking about early treatment of COVID-19. One of our interviews with Craig was removed by YouTube soon after it was posted. We immediately appealed this decision and received a two-word answer. Appeal rejected. No reason, just appeal rejected. That interview, by the way, is available on the free speech platform rumble.com. Look for Asia Pacific today. I urge you to watch the interview and come to your own conclusions about the state of censorship in Australia. The Australian government and most of our leaders have apparently not woken up to the fact that mainstream media and big tech is flexing its muscles here and will soon be censoring others who say things they don't like, including during elections. By the way, Craig Kelly MP is now an independent, leaving a hole for the Morrison government and a lot less backbone. As a footnote, a new code of practice developed by industry organisation Digi, D-I-G-I, note that, has been adopted by Twitter, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Redbubble and TikTok, all the big tech companies that we trust, love and admire. Not. This Australian Disinformation and Misinformation Code, they say, will reduce the risk of online fake news. They are the fake news. While politicians, public servants and many in big business have done well during the pandemic, government action has destroyed livelihoods of many in small business. Aside from the human costs of the lockdowns, losses in trade exposed sectors such as tourism, hospitality, higher education and agriculture, and they've been smashed. This has been accompanied by a massive rise in government debt to meet the costs of the pandemic and support employment. No great reforms, financial or economic, are on the agenda, with yet another estate election due in WA and a looming federal election probably at the end of the year. Despite some reprieve, Australia has much to be concerned about. The arrival of a vaccine will not avert future lockdowns. Dan in Victoria, Anastasia in Queensland, McGowan in WA, they love lockdowns. And external restrictions mean restricting growth and productivity and highlighting the lack of a plan to fight another round of this virus or another pandemic. Is bad policy, growing debt and big government here to stay? Robert Carling is a senior fellow in the economics program at the Centre for Independent Studies and has recently published an article, The Looming Iceberg, Australia's Post-Pandemic Debt Risk. Robert, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Mike. Now, you've written about a looming iceberg and our post-pandemic debt risk. Can you give us an idea of the magnitude of this problem? It refers to the acceleration in public debt 
um, as a result of the pandemic, and there are various ways of quantifying that. Um, I will I will take just one, which is general government gross debt of the federal government and the states and territories combined. And on that basis, we're seeing an increase from about $800 billion in 2019 to a projected $1,750 billion in 2024. So that's an increase of roughly $1 trillion in five years. And even the 2019 figure was an increase from uh, the years earlier. So the, it's a well-established upward trend, but the pandemic has caused it to um, accelerate. And um, the the paper that you refer to um, uh, talks about the risks uh, in the future associated with this, um, including the risk of uh, slower economic growth in the future as a result of this debt burden, um, less fiscal flexibility for future governments, um, less capacity to respond to the, the next crisis, whatever its nature might be. So they are the kinds of things that I'm talking about when I talk about the iceberg. Some states have had their credit rating downgraded. However, Australia has retained a AAA rating. Now, what will it take for them to change course? Well, uh, New South Wales and Victoria, which were the remaining AAA-rated states in Australia, were downgraded by one notch immediately after their budgets um, late last year. Uh, it's not unusual for in, uh, these uh, downgrades to uh, not stop at just one. So, you know, you tend to get a series of them. So it would not be surprising if, um, if they go further. But I think the rating agencies will just wait a while to see what happens before they take any further action at the national level. The Commonwealth Government is still, still rated AAA, but um, it ha attached to that is uh, something called uh, a negative outlook. So, in other words, they're saying that uh, they're more likely than not to be downgraded in the future, but there is no certainty to that. And again, the, the rating agencies will wait and see. I think that um, what it will take to to prevent it from happening will be would need to be a, a strong economic rebound um, continuing um, and um, uh, action by the Commonwealth government uh, to to stop the hemorrhaging um, on the exp budget of expenditure and uh, the explosion of the deficit that they will have to show that they are um, determined to bring all that under control and take us back towards a balanced budget, not necessarily surpluses, but a balanced budget within a reasonable uh, period of time. Balanced budget's really interesting. Um, is, is there such a thing? Well, there was um, as recently as 2018-19 mm -hmm. that the, the Commonwealth Government finally, after years and years of struggle and uh, um, and a lot of political heat over it, the issue, 
and how to get there, they just finally scraped home to, well, it, it wasn't exactly balanced, but it was so close to it mm. that you could say that it was. So, I mean, that was very recent. Mm. But from where we are now, it's mm. going to be much harder because the deficit is so much larger than it was back then. Um, and um, and I think it, it, it certainly is years away. And ditto at the state level that um, they have very large deficits and uh, any any return to balance um, is years away. And if the uh, state governments keep locking down, uh, it's going to be even harder. And uh, I mean, uh, just in one of the uh, publications today, in fact, they were saying that um, that international travel may not get back to where it was uh, pre-COVID uh, for three years. But you hear in the on the grapevine in the US, for example, uh, that they're expecting a, a six to ten year uh, turnaround from where we are now to getting back to, to normal. So who knows? Look, government policies and not the virus have had a, a devastating impact on our economy and small businesses. Uh, are you surprised, though, there's such an appetite for lockdowns and border controls? Well, I am surprised. Um, of course, that appetite has been uh, fed by the, uh, the massive um, monetary and fiscal support that has come from government to to soften the blow of the lockdowns. But um, I am certainly surprised and have been for a long time, going back almost to the beginning of this, uh, almost a year ago. I think that um, it has uh, a lot to do with exaggerated fears on the part of the Australian population, which have been partly due to things that state government, particularly state government um, uh, spokesmen have said. Um, it's, uh, I think it's also come about because we in Australia, I think, su surprised ourselves by how rapidly the COVID infection numbers dwindled last autumn during the, the national lockdown. Um, and it was virtually became zero uh, fairly quickly. Uh, and, and I think that um, people came to think that that was a standard uh, that should be maintained um, and uh, I think that that is, that is the problem, that we've become boxed in by this unrealistic expectation that we can have a zero COVID standard, that is elimination. Mm. Um, the, if that were to happen, it would come at enormous and unsustainable cost. I, my only hope is that um, the vaccines will be the circuit breaker that can get us out of this way of thinking. And mm. that um, as a re if once the vaccine becomes fairly widely um, applied, um, that people, that the fear will dissipate and that people will accept that there will be a certain incidence of the, of the virus, but that it will be relatively 
harmless. Interesting, though. Um, and yeah, that's the uh, the thought that once we get the vaccine, we can move back to being normal and not COVID normal. Uh, but um, uh, Safe Work Australia, um, I'm just doing this from the top of my head here, but they actually uh, said that just because you have the vaccine doesn't mean you can't get COVID and, and pass it on, uh, which would sort of intimate that, sure, you might get the shot and the jab, but... Uh, we're still going to have this uh, this um, surprise element out there called COVID running around doing terrible things. And so therefore, what may happen is that lockdown still will happen, makes the workplace not safe uh, because of even though you have the vaccine, according to Safe Work Australia, you can still get COVID. So, you know, just going back to what you're saying, I think the, uh, you know, th- there seems to be this this urge a real urge to lock things down. So you wonder, though, uh, Robert, whether it's more than just COVID. Um, Well, I think um, what you were saying about Safe Work Australia, um, I would say that, yes, look, I'm not not an expert on the the medical Mm. aspect of this, Mm. but, uh, yeah, I understand that a certain percentage of those vaccinated can still get COVID and a certain percentage percentage of those can pass it on. Mm. But the issue is how serious is how serious are the consequences of that? And as my understanding is that the vaccine re- reduces, greatly reduces the seriousness of it mm. and that what people are getting is much more like a regular cold or flu Mm. and you know we have to we've always lived with that we've always lived with the cold and Mm. flu and um, we have to live with it uh, covid if that's what it is Mm. if that's what it um, is transformed into by the vaccine governments need to stop uh, getting that urge to lock down because it really doesn't do anything except delay. Look, um, in another one of your papers, you discuss the need for economic reform to boost growth and productivity, etc. What reform do you think would have been most dramatic, or have the most dramatic impact uh, on growth? Well, there's no, there's no single thing that's going to have a dramatic impact. But, you know, we have two, two tasks on the economic front. One is to um, restore the economy to its potential and the other one is to increase its potential. So restoring it to its potential is largely, um, will largely be a result of removing COVID-19 restrictions on all forms of activity um, and also uh, the, uh, the effects of the monetary and fiscal stimulus that are still in the pipeline uh, coming through. So, and we've already made really great strides back towards um, potential economic activity. You you know, you've seen the unemployment rate uh, drop. And first of all, it did not increase as much as had been feared. And secondly, it has dropped back more rapidly uh, than uh, had been expected. So, and that will hopefully continue. But the second task is to increase 
our economic potential. And that's more difficult, and that's where the economic reforms uh, that you referred to come in. Uh, we have to improve our productivity growth. And uh, this was a problem even before the pandemic. Um, our potential economic growth rate had diminished and productivity growth had diminished. Um, but the pandemic has just given it another hit and made it a bit worse again. So the task has intensified. As I said, there's, there's no one action that's going to have a dramatic effect. It will have to be a set of actions, each of which may have a small impact, but when you add it all together, it has a meaningful effect in lifting our potential economic growth. And some of these actions include um, industrial relations and uh, getting back to real enterprise bargaining, which has fallen away so much. Um, infrastructure development, uh, skill training, uh, reducing business taxation, corporate tax rate particularly. Um, these kinds of things are what I'm talking about, uh, which will, over time, and it takes time, increase our potential economic growth. I said to um, uh, some friends of mine, who would, who would ever want to be in government at the moment? I mean, it's been very challenging times, hasn't it, Robert? Well, yes, and unfortunately, just recently, Scott Morrison said, well, it's not the time for these reforms. We don't, we don't have any appetite for it. Um, our focus is on other things, and that's that's very unfortunate. And mm. um, it just it just puts off what will eventually need to be done. Would you think though this is probably one of the best times to uh, to to uh, bring in reform and 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 move things along because it's an ideal opportunity. Uh, well, that's right. So there's the the well known what has become the well known saying of don't let a crisis go to waste. <laughs> um, and uh, yes, a crisis tends to create the atmosphere um, for doing things mm. like this, which which is not people don't see the need for it if you're in good times, whereas they might be more willing to accept the need for it in tough times. But unfortunately, up to now, our governments don't seem to see it that way. Lucky there's not an election on the horizon. Otherwise, maybe we might see some reform. Robert, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. The Biden administration is seeking to pass its latest $1.9 trillion COVID relief package, or as they're calling it, a rescue package, which contains further measures for small business and other COVID relief making up just 9% of the package, along with generous handouts to Democratic supporters and badly managed Democratic states, such as California. Blake Christian is a partner at Holthouse, Carlin and Van Trite. Blake, great to see you once again. Always good to see you, Mike. 
Given the difficulties that businesses have faced during the pandemic, can you provide an update on the main measures available, starting with, say, the PPP loans and how the two rounds have differed and any major issues? Right. So um, the, you know, as you just said, the, you know, the first round uh, started in April of 2020 and that one was for $520 billion. The second round, which came in uh, through some legislation, uh, December 27th of 2020, uh, which is referred to as round two or the second draw, that, uh, that amount is $284 billion. So some pretty substantial numbers uh, that you're dealing with there. Um, so far, uh, and most of this is just round one, there's been 5.1 million loans made. Um, so it's pretty, you know, again, pretty broad, pretty impactful. Uh, a lot of people ask, you know, oh, was it just the big companies that got them? And uh, about 16% of the dollars were concentrated in, in loans of $2 million or more. And uh, the balance was, you know, were for for uh, sub two million dollar loans for you know it's so arguably those were for smaller businesses. Um, so again, I, I think they've done a, a reasonably good job in in spreading the money around. Um, you're always going to hear criticisms, um, you know, and, and there's absolutely situations where companies that didn't really need the money um, received money. That's going to happen when you're trying to get money out into the system real quick. But for the most part, I think uh, they've done a, a pretty good job with the program. So there's been hundreds of billions involved. Can you give us an idea how effective PPP has been? You know, I, I can I can tell you, you know, some of it's from reading, but but a lot of it's from from talking to business owners. And, and I, I, I was very impressed, you know, how hard business owners tried to keep their employees in place. And, um, you know, a lot of them could have just shut down, saved more money. You know, even if they didn't go for the PPP, they could have just shut down and, and hunkered down for a while. But they really wanted to keep those loyal employees in place. And so I saw, you know, restaurateurs, um, you know, hoteliers, um, you know, other small business uh, owners really – you know, doing everything, you know, first using their, their own funds. When the PPP loans came around, they, you know, most of them applied for it. But so, some people just didn't, you know, they knew they would, could qualify, but they just didn't feel right asking for the money. And, um, you know, on the, on the good thing, I, I was actually happy to see Treasury and the IRS actually, um, you know, they, they did out some of these people. And so they, they made it pretty much public information as to who took out loans. And so, um, you know, there's there's some interesting things surfaced on, uh, you know, very wealthy people mm. taking loans that they shouldn't have. There were additional measures, though, introduced in the December 2020 legislation. Can you talk about these? Yeah, so, um, and mo most of it was expansion. Um, you know, what, I guess one of the new ones uh, to try and help the restaurants, um, and, and we're trying to promote this, um, you know, with the restaurants that we work with. Uh, you, you know, 100%, usually there's only a 50% deduction for business meals, 
But if you if you provide business meals through a restaurant, which would normally be the case, takeout or if you you know actually uh, went there, uh, it's a hundred percent deductible. And uh, what's really nice for guys like you and me, it's you know you can also it's food and beverage, mm. and they do not they do not limit if it's alcoholic beverages. So you do have you had a lot of people during the pandemic they relaxed the alcohol rules and they actually let a lot of restaurants even here in Utah uh, put alcohol in the you know to go uh, orders, which mm. normally wouldn't be the case. And so you could order a nice dinner with a nice bottle of wine. Uh, actually, let me make that a business lunch with a nice bottle of wine or a, an evening business uh, gathering, and that would be uh, fully tax deductible. The drinks were on Joe. Right. Uh, the, uh, the rest of the changes, you know, again, uh, the expansion of the PPP program, they did, uh, the, the qualifications are tougher you have to have a 25% drop in your revenue in any given quarter. Uh, you, it's 300 maximum employees at any single location. So that's still pretty broad, even for some big companies. And, um, and then they broadened, you know, before it was just really wages, utilities, and rent that you could pay uh, with those PPP funds. Now it's it's basically any any reasonable operating expenses, and so um, you know the the second round is uh, a little bit better. Now the the really nice thing is even for people that received round one PPP loans, they they are still absolutely allowed to take a second draw in this uh, second round. So that's good. Uh, they also expanded the employer retention credit um, for, um, again, keeping keeping your employees in place. You can't double dip. You can't use monies that you used on the PPP from the PPP loan for salary to get this credit. But you, there's plenty of other uh, wages typically that you could um, you could look at to get these credits. And they, it was $12,000 per year per employee in credits that you could claim under the, uh, the original CARES Act. But in the second round, uh, now it's $12,000 per quarter. And uh, what's really nice is you, can, you don't have to wait uh, to file your return to get those benefits. You can offset those credits against your payroll tax obligation. So you get immediate uh, tax benefit and and they are refundable if you end up not having a tax liability sufficient. We just finished a study for it was a it's a combination of a, a construction company with about sixty employees. They also had operated a restaurant with about twenty six employees. We got them two hundred eighty thousand dollars of credits. Mm-hmm. So that just kind of gives you an example. It's pretty impactful and that that will that will keep a lot of people employed for um, you know the next year. And of course, they celebrated after that and uh, claimed 100% back. It's fantastic. <laughs> I know these guys, and they, they probably did do that. <laughs> and you weren't invited. Shame, shame, shame. Look, Joe Biden, <laughs> sorry, uh, Joe Biden this week announced uh, yet more measures for small business. Is this an indication that the really small businesses 
have not been able to take advantage of previous measures? You know, I, I think uh, even the small businesses have have benefited, but um, they're. I, I think it's more of a focus of let's you know the the big businesses can fend for themselves. Let's let's really concentrate more on the small businesses. So I, I, I don't think it's completely that they they haven't been helped already, but j- just that those those will have a you know a, just more consistent with his his general platform. You know what I have really noticed. I mean, sure the these, you know, the relief is is always welcome, but how the value of money seems to have just got just almost vanished. I mean, once upon a time, you'd say something was 100 million. That's a lot of money. Oh, no, no, we're into the billions now. 100 billion. Oh, that's a lot of money. And the 100 million is not a lot of money. And now we're talking about trillions. So yep. it's just, I mean, and, and the, the media talk about all these great measures and the government says we're doing that. But do you think we can get ourselves into a trap that we don't appreciate the value of money? Well, that, that's called a recipe for inflation. Mm. <laughs> so, um, you know, when, when you spend a lot of money and then just print a lot of money and take on a bunch of debt, the inevitable result is going to be inflation. And uh, we've had, you know, two decades of, you know, pretty under control inflation. And uh, but actually... You know, I can't remember if it was the Wall Street Journal or Forbes uh, over the weekend had an article that that's kind of embedded in the Biden plan is, you know, don't don't worry about, you know, that they think his his premise is, you know, maybe trying to contain inflation was a bad idea and it didn't help certain people. So let's just let inflation run its course and spend like drunken sailors Mm -hmm. and uh, net net the economy will be stronger. And so it's going to be it's going to be interesting exercise. We've, you know, been uh, 180 degrees off that for the last, you know, couple couple of decades. And uh, so we'll see if it works. Yeah. What first of all, the the drunken sailor bit again, they can claim 100 percent on that. So that's OK. <laughs> but, but, but the other thing is you come back to that. <laughs> well, it really interests me. I, I must get back there. No, I can't. We can't leave Australia right now. We're stuck here. Um, but the other thing is, you know, taxes will rise. I mean, this is great handing this out, but taxes will rise. You'll have inflation. Um, in Australia, for example, if you want to buy a, a, um, a just a nice apartment in a, um, say, in, a, in an OK area, you're looking at about 650 to 700,000. So if that was to occur in the States, because that's what happens with inflation and paying back or higher taxes and uh, an increase in wages and all of a sudden things start to get out of control. How do you think the Americans though, would feel about, say, an apartment that might have cost, say, 250 if you're out of the uh, out of L.A. or New York, but you're in, in rural areas and all of a sudden within, say, five years, it's gone up to 500,000. Now, the 500,000 isn't as worth as much as it was five years ago, but it's still increasing. How do you think they would accept this? Do you think they would say, well, maybe the last two decades were pretty good that we kept control on this inflationary uh, exercise of of handing out money and paying for people's bills because you still got to pay it back? Yeah, they, they would they would not be happy, but it brings up, you know, kind of another mm. perspective that the, the one, you know, group 
that likes inflation is government agencies because they get more money, right? <laughs> your your, do- your dollars don't don't last as mm. long, but they um, they're they're taxed. You know, you get a, you get fifty thousand dollar increase in income, or you know, you pay more income tax. You you pay two hundred fifty thousand more for a house. The property taxes double. Mm. So um, they're not they're not that disappointed with inflation, except except when they're borrowing money at the federal level. But the states love it. Mm. The part that I love, and hopefully it'll be once we can get back to the U.S., it won't go away. The 100% deduction. I, I just, uh, you and I will be having lunch Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, maybe Saturday, and church on Sunday. It'll just be, you know, our order will be um, hold the food, just bring the booze. <laughs> well, well uh, can you give Baja Cantina a call for me or uh, a couple of restaurants we went to in Venice? There's some lovely places. Uh, drinks, I mean, who cares about the price? We'll get it back. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Blake Christian, Blake Christian. Now, before we go, if somebody wants to find out where to go to a great bar in LA or more about tax, how would they do that? Uh, just Google Blake Christian CPA uh, or my phone number is 562-305-8050. All right. And make that reservation. Uh, make it for eight o'clock tonight. Sounds great. I'm ready. Blake Christian, thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. A big day again and lots happening globally. For Asia Pacific Today, I'm Mike Ryan.